water. Where'd it go? <laughs> hey, we're wrapping up our series um, today, Thriving at Home, and we are going to end with the very light topic of conflict. Hey, going into the holidays, that might be helpful. Um, I'm going to share a little story with you this morning, and my mom's in the room, so I can't lie because she was there. <laughs> um, so when I, I honestly don't remember how old I was. I think I was about 10 years old, and I got into a fight with my brother. Um, obviously not the only fight that I ever got into uh, with my brother, but this one was memorable for reasons that will soon become clear to everybody. Um, so we were playing Atari, and now everybody knows how I'm old. I'm old, okay? Um, so for the younger children in the room, or even the young adults in the room that don't know, Atari was like a three-bit game system, right? Um, and we were playing this game called Space Invaders. And you can only play one person at a time. So when you have two siblings, you have to take turns. And the rule was, you get to play until all your lives are gone, and then the other person gets to go. Um, and you can ask my husband, I'm really good at video games. So I was just playing and playing and apparently my brother got impatient and he decided to stand right in front of the screen. And when your screen is only, you know, 20 inches big, you can block the whole screen if you stand in front of it, right? <laughs> and so I would die and he would stand in front of the screen again and I would lose another life. And I told him, I was like, knock it off, cut it, cut it out. And then I started yelling and he still wasn't listening. So I told him, if you don't move, I'm going to hit you with this controller. <laughs> and he didn't move. And so... Another thing about video game systems back in the day, they were connected by cords, right? You didn't have wireless. So I grabbed that cord like a nunchuck and I swung the controller and hit my brother square on top of the head. And then of course, chaos ensued. He starts screaming like I'm trying to kill him and my mom comes and he's bleeding and she's yelling at me and I, the whole time I'm standing there, it's not my fault. I told him if he didn't move that I was gonna hit him. And he didn't move, so it's not my fault, it's his fault. <laughs> okay, my brother's fine, I didn't do any lasting damage, he didn't need any stitches or anything, but that whole attitude, it's not my fault, it's his fault, right? That is how our world approaches conflict. It's not my fault. That, it's not my fault that you're upset, you're just being too sensitive. It's not my fault that I lashed out in anger, you provoked me. It's not my fault that I lied, um, you don't know what I'm dealing with. I, I can't trust people. I had a bad childhood, and you know, maybe that's true. You know, all of these things can be true, that the reasons that we do the things we do in conflict have deep-rooted causes in our childhood and our life experiences, but that whole idea of the fault and the shifting of blame um, like we're confronted with our shortcomings and we become defensive. That is as old as time, right? Adam and Eve in the garden. Yeah. It's not my fault I ate the fruit. That woman that you gave to me, she made me do it. <laughs> it's not my fault that I ate the fruit. The serpent, he deceived me. We have this worldly response to conflict. And if you look at the world around us, that, that way of life is not sustainable, right? And a lot of us recognize that. And we look for tools um, to cope with conflict. And we read books and we go to therapy and we take classes and gain those tools to approach conflict in a mature and uh, respectful way. You know, I'm happy to tell everybody here I don't hit people with Atari controllers anymore, so I've matured as a human being. But 
you know, tools are wonderful and tools are necessary and they're incredibly helpful. But you don't need Jesus to live out the five strategies for conflict resolution in a workplace. You, you don't need Jesus for, you know, the seven effective ways to cope with conflict in a marriage. Jesus is absent in all of that. So this morning, well, he's not absent, sorry, that was poor phrasing, but you don't need Jesus for that. You can do those things without Jesus. Um, but the thing I want to ask us this morning is, how does being a follower of Jesus change the way I approach conflict? Because being a follower of Jesus should radically impact the way that we, as his followers, approach conflict in our lives, in our world. Because we can look at the world and we can see conflict everywhere. You know, conflict in our daily lives, conflict in our society, conflict on a global scale actual wars, real conflict, and it can be overwhelming. But I think with this Thriving at Home series, the idea is when you start in your life and with the people who are closest to you, that has a ripple effect. It goes out from who you are and into the world around us. So as the backdrop for this idea of conflict, we're going to use a conflict from the Bible that probably most people are familiar with. I mean, they made, I think it's a musical, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. I think there's songs involved in that one. Um, but we're going to, it's a long story, so we're not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to start at the beginning of the story in Genesis 37. If you want to scan the QR code or um, open up your Bible, we're going to start in Genesis 37 for a little bit of the origin story of the conflict between Joseph and his brothers, and then we'll kind of skip ahead to the end. Um, but let me, let me just pause for a minute and let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you um, that you are present in our conflicts and in our peace. God, that you are present everywhere. Pray that you would just open our hearts to your presence in this room, open our minds that we might um, learn from you this morning and hear your voice speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so Genesis 37, uh, starting in verse 2, this is just a little bit about who Joseph and his brothers are. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended to his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpha. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their, their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. One night, Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tidying up bundles of grain. Suddenly my bundle stood up and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. His brothers responded, so you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Joseph was a bit of a punk younger brother, right? He's a little bit of a tattletale, a little bit arrogant, clearly daddy's favorite and getting these gifts. And so... Um, we can see why his brothers hated him, resented him, um, and what they decided to do was kill him. Um, but his, I think it's his oldest, oldest brother, um, talked a little bit of sentence into him, and all they did was sell him into slavery. I mean, 
but it's better than killing him, right? <laughs> um, just a really drastic response. And even though most of us, I mean, maybe some of us have thought about killing the people who have angered us, but most of us don't actually, you know, sell our, our enemies or our family into slavery as a response to a conflict. But, but we are in this story too. Um, we can see ourselves in, in the resentment that builds, in the need to put our needs above the needs of the people around us, or, you know, somebody hurts us in the things that they do and we want to hurt them back, or we put up walls and we want to protect ourselves so that they can't hurt us again. This is all natural human responses to the things that happen in life, especially in a story as dramatic as this. And some of us have lived out really dramatic and painful things in our lives. But this isn't how we were made to live. This isn't how God created us to live. Um, there is a book called Faithful Presence. Um, David Fitch wrote it, and in it he says, the, cycle of violence, the cycles of violence and anger, abuse and pain, never seem to be broken. We are a society that yearns for hope. We crave good news. We long for the gospel, for a new world to be born. Right? We look at the world around us and we, we see all of this conflict and we feel the discontentment of living in a, a world where people are selfish and sinful and we long for something different. And that, I think, is how we as followers of Jesus need to know the difference in how we approach conflict because the gospel is what changes conflict. The presence of God and the truth about the gospel is what we can bring to the world that nobody else can. As followers of Jesus, we can bring the good news that God is reconciling the world to himself. If you look at um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, it says, and all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Um, there's a similar passage in Colossians 1, and it, there's, verse 22 says, Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Right? The gospel is this good news that through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we can once again come into the presence of God without shame, without fear. And since our sins no longer separate us from God, we shouldn't allow our sins to separate us from other people, right? We are the image of God. I'm the image of God. You're the image of God. Everyone in here is made in the image of God. We were made to be present with God and present with each other. And... Doing that is hard. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. So let's go back to our story of Joseph and just think about how the story ends and what that means for conflict and what the gospel can do for conflict and what God can do in the midst of conflict. Because Joseph 
was sold into slavery. And he was accused of a crime that he didn't commit and he was thrown into jail. And not just for a few minutes, it was years, at least two years, but probably more than that. And during that time, he could have been harboring resentment, building bitterness, just seething in anger at what his brothers had done to him, right? Because they betrayed him. They sold him into slavery. He, according to the world standards, he had every right to be angry. He had every right to try to, you know, get revenge on his brothers and his captors. Um, but instead, in Genesis 39:21, it says, but the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And I just want you to hold on to that line, the Lord was with Joseph, because we'll come back to it in a minute. Um, but Joseph eventually is freed from prison, right? And he becomes the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Pharaoh puts him in control of all of these things, and there's, he has dreams, and there's a famine coming. Like, if you want to read, you know, those couple of chapters in Genesis, if you're not familiar with the story, it's pretty epic. But ultimately what happens, there's a famine in the land, and Joseph is the one in control of all the food. And his brothers have to come to Egypt to get food because they have no food at home. And they have to come to Joseph. But they don't know that it's Joseph, right? It's been years and years and he's grown and obviously they thought he was probably dead and they didn't expect to see him there. So they don't recognize him when they come to Egypt to buy their grain. And Joseph tests them basically to see what kind of men they are and if they're still the type of men who would sell their brother into slavery. Um, but ultimately we come to the point in Genesis 45 where he reveals himself to his brothers, and we have this um, moment of reconciliation. And so if you turn to Genesis 45, starting in verse 1, it says, Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, Out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him, and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer, and he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery. But don't be upset, and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you, to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace, and the governor of all of Egypt. And then a couple more things happen, and life, you know, goes on. And then um, his father Jacob dies. And I just want to read this passage too, because it also reveals some interesting things about um, Joseph and his character. So after burying Jacob... Um, this is Genesis 50, starting in verse 14. After burying Jacob, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had accompanied him to his father's burial. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of God, of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. 
When Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. Right, God intended it all for good. Joseph's brothers, you know, they could have made excuses as to why they did what they did. But they came and they, and they said, forgive us for the terrible wrong that we did to you. Joseph could have harbored his bitterness and anger, but he didn't. He forgave them, and he even revealed to them God's provision and God's design and all of that that had happened, right? Back in Genesis 39, we read that the Lord was with Joseph through all of his trials. But it wasn't just that God was with Joseph, but Joseph was also with God because Joseph was paying attention to God's presence in his life. He was paying attention to how God was moving and orchestrating things so that Joseph could be exactly where God needed him to be, right? He didn't, he didn't shut himself off from the presence of God. He followed God's voice. He listened to what God was saying to him and as a result, changed a nation. He changed his family's you know, path. He saved them. He saved many people from the famine because he was aware of and attuning to the presence of God and what God was doing in his world. And he didn't allow the conflicts with his family or the conflicts with his captors to turn him to anger or to resentment. But in all of that, there was forgiveness and grace and peace because he knew that God was in control of his circumstances. And so we as followers of Christ, are called to remember why we were created, right? We are the image of God. We are God's ambassadors. We are God's representation here on earth. And the message that we should be bringing in all of our conflict is God loves you. God wants to reconcile you to himself. He wants to reconcile us to each other. There should be peace. There should be love. There should be shalom in all of our conflicts because that is what God did for us in Christ, right? Christ died for us in our sin so that we can stand in the presence of God and we can be that presence, that that is what we are. The kingdom come here on earth is God's presence in our midst, our, his presence in every interaction that we have. Um, at another point in his book, David Fitch says that this of, this idea of reconciliation. He says, at the core of this discipline is the presence of Christ established between two people. The charge is to become present to this other person in a way that recognizes Christ's presence here among us. Listening grounds this discipline. And so presence, both my presence to the other person and my tending to Jesus's presence here among us is central to this discipline. Reconciliation is fundamentally a discipline of faithful presence. The image of God in me comes face to face with the image of God in you. And we have this moment where we pause and we listen and say, what is God doing in this moment? I humble myself before you and say, how have, like, how have I hurt you? 
I humble myself before you and say, this is how I know I've hurt you, and I'm sorry. This is, this is the place where heaven meets earth, when we are able to not consider ourselves better than other people, but humble ourselves and come into those moments of conflict, knowing that God is present and that God can work miracles, that God can heal any wound, that God can restore any relationship, that God can reconcile ourselves to him and to each other. Um, and so in, in a few minutes, we're going to take communion together. I'm going to invite Calvin and Ellie to come back up while I just, I'm going to read a couple of verses that I want us to take a time um, before we come to the table to just sit and reflect on um, so let me just read a few verses and then I'll, I'll give a little bit of a direction for our reflection. Matthew 5, 23 through 24 says, So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Colossians 3.13 says, Make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And Matthew 18.21 and 22 says, Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 77 times. Forgiveness is hard. Reconciliation is hard. A lot of times it's not something that happens overnight. Sometimes it takes years. Um, but we are called to be humble, right? It says, if you remember that someone has something against you, not if you remember something you have someone against someone else, but if you remember something that someone has against you, go and be reconciled to them before you come and offer your sacrifice, right? We have to approach it with humility. And... I just keep thinking about when Jesus was hanging there on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. I mean, <laughs> they took his life, they beat him and they hung him on a cross to die and he said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We are called to live as Jesus did and, <laughs> and it's impossible without God. We cannot do that in our own strength. Um, this isn't something that can happen overnight. Sometimes it's one step at a time, one day at a time, one decision at a time, a slow nudging closer and closer to that presence of God. And so I'm, I just want to invite everyone to take the next few minutes and reflect. Is there someone in your life right now that you need to reconcile with? Is there someone that you need to go to and just have that conversation and invite the presence of God into that moment and say, you know, I'm here and I'm listening. Let's work this out. Um, if they're in this room, I'm going to challenge you to do that really hard thing and just go talk to them. But if they're not here, I put some post-its on the chairs. Maybe just write their name down and take that post-it with you as a reminder to schedule coffee or lunch or something to just have that face-to-face -face time and invite the presence of God into that moment um, and see what happens because <laughs> God does amazing things when we are open to his presence. So 
Just take a minute or two to reflect, and then when you're ready, um, I invite you to come up and get the bread and the juice. For those of you who need no no gluten, gluten-free, there is a little bowl of crackers. Um, so if, if, you, if you can eat bread, take the bread, please. But if you can't, the crackers are there for you. Um, and then we'll all come back together in a few minutes to take communion together. So once you hold it, just hold it in your hands while you're at your seat, and then we'll do that together.